thank you all the attendees for joining in this great session by Wayne Rock Bank. Wayne, uh, uh, rather than delving me into a lot of introduction about Wayne, uh, everyone can Google him and you can understand. But we're just going to have some basic conversation in order to understand his career trajectory. At the same time, will help us understanding as to uh, how we are going to approach this session. So it's a lot of conversation in this session. I would also request all the attendees that if you have got that uh, questions, you have got some insight, you want to share, share it with Wayne, just raise your hand on uh, on the Zoom platform and uh, I'll bring you on the podium. So on that note, uh, Wayne, I'll, I'll start this session. Uh, so it, I'll just do some rapid fire questions. Just answer whatever you feel become comfortable with okay so okay. yeah uh, so my first question is that when did you really decide to become a professor it, it, I know it's almost 40 years now but when did you really decide that this is what I want to do I want to be an academician well it's not so much it, it's when my wife told me to become a professor <laughs> <laughs> that's partially true um, it was it was a very interesting experience. I had a I had a professor when I did my master's degree at Brigham Young University, who I really deeply deeply respected. He's he's one of the two or three smartest people I've ever known in my life. His name was uh, J. B. Ritchie, um, and uh, uh, and he told me once. Uh, well, you know, I was talking to a friend who had been already accepted to MIT's PhD program. And, and I said, so why, why did you go get a PhD? Because Bonner, because Rich, Professor Ritchie said I should. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure I'll do that because I, I was just promoted in a company I was working for in my undergraduate degree, in, uh, coming out of my master's degree. And, uh, and then my colleague said, well, you'll go get a PhD too. And I said, really, what makes you think that? He says, because Professor Ritchie said you're going to. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. The other thing is, uh, I, my wife and I have very strong feelings for the moral and almost eth ethical responsibility to share with, with, any, with, with world any opportunities we've had. And, and to do that, it seemed to me to become a professor was the way to, to do that best, to be able to, to gain knowledge, to integrate it, to develop new knowledge, and then to share that. So that became a fundamental driving desire for us uh, across the world. And as a result, we've lived at least one year, a full year in, in India, China, Ghana, Nigeria, Germany, the UAE, and the United States. So we've tried to live up to that that obligation we've felt uh, to share and and to to be part of the global community. Oh, great, great, great. So, when so you have been there in this entire ecosystem of human resources and uh, uh, for almost more than forty years. Uh, if I have to ask you to just give me a couple of learnings in terms of to the entire audience. So what have been the two key learnings or maybe three key learnings which you have had in the last four decades or something? 
Now, I know this is going to be very difficult, but just um, in, in terms of whatever you feel is just out of the league itself, something like that. We'll talk more of this when we get into leadership. Sure. But it's very clear there are three things that have come together in my intellectual journey. Uh, one is um, that early in my career, I had the opportunity of working with an oil company, and uh, and this company become very inward focused, and it was uh, and it kind of lost track of of of, of a real deep in in depth feeling for what's going on in its marketplace. Now they thought they did, but when we went out and surveyed the, the very broad customer base, we found that um, uh, that the company had in fact lost kind of some of its connection with what the fundamental drivers in the markets were. And as a result, they were hiring the wrong kind of people, they were promoting the wrong kind of people, they were they were measuring the wrong things. They're rewarding the wrong, the wrong uh, along the wrong criteria. And when we brought that customer data in, and and helped. The, by the way, and and, and, every, and the company we weren't doing this as consultants. We had the company actually go out and gather the data. But when we brought that data back and presented it and showed the inconsistencies between their assumptions and what the marketplace actually wanted, and then we redesigned. Uh, who was going to get promoted, who, who, what the measurements were, the rewards were, uh, uh, what the uh, training programs were going to look like, the kind of people were going to be hired. When we realigned all of those fundamental organization HR levers to be consistent with actually what the customer wanted, this company's market share just skyrocketed. And and over a, over a two-year period of time, that change uh, increased uh, its market share about 12% that brought uh, revenues that, that increased revenues uh, about 2.6 billion dollars and so and I was uh, I was shocked as the as actually the company was too by what happens when you make sure with absolute certainty that you understand what the customers require and you ensure that you have the organization in place that are created by the collective HR practices that are consistent with those practices. That's probably the single most important. Now notice that story brings together three pieces. One is the importance of connecting HR practices and leadership practices to market realities. You don't start by saying, what does the company want or what do employees want or what do leaders want? You start by saying, what does the market require? Hmm. And then, you make sure that that understanding is facilitated by a flow of information that is accurate, timely, shared, debated, and then utilized. And then third, and, and all of that builds on a foundation of the concept of culture. Is that Then the question is, what kind of a culture do we need to have that's consistent with the requirements of the marketplace that is informed by the flow of information that comes from the marketplace into the firm. So, uh, customer knowledge, information, and and uh, uh, and connecting all of that to the culture that you need. So Good. that's that's my fundamental learning, and I've been working on that for the last forty years. Great, great, great. I think uh, <clears throat> a 
lot of insights in that we'll continue with that in our further discussions uh as uh, another thing which i want to know uh now since you have written a lot of research papers uh you've written a lot of books uh, published a lot of articles there's a lot of content which have really come from your side i've got a very simple question and this is related to books really i have gone through almost all your books which you have written which you have co-authored which you authored that when is the time when you decide that we have i have to write a book so is it about a topic which excites you it's about sudden market reality which is there when do you really think that i have to go about sharing some knowledge to the world that's a great question boy these are not the questions you sent me but these are terrific <laughs> there's no surprises <laughs> all is good to have some surprises right <laughs> well, these are terrific questions okay so how do we just how do i decide when to write a book in my heart of heart i'm an empiricist that is you know i'm i'm a little bit creative but the main thing that i am is i'm an empiricist i believe in in data and research but what informs my research is something very clear uh uh that is i'm looking for the organization leadership and hr practices that have greatest impact on business performance but i'm now that's part of the equation that's only half the equation the other half the equation of what leadership organization hr practices tend not to be done well okay so what i do is try to put those together so the point is that if something if 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 those practices have great impact on business performance but everybody's already doing it then i'm not going to write a book about it because everybody's doing it and a lot of times companies and students and executives that come to our programs kind of want to be pat I, I i need to be careful i don't want to say this too much like to be patted on the back and say you're doing really well and that's okay but if everybody else is doing the same thing really well then that's not competitive advantage that's not bringing competitive advantage to the marketplace right. on the other hand if something isn't done well but doesn't create any value then that's stupid you know you don't want to focus on things that aren't done well that that don't add any value but what you do want to focus on is those practices that that add great value but tend not to be done well throughout the world because that's the area of opportunity that's the area of potential competitive advantage things that are important but people tend companies tend not to do every 10 every 5 years at the university of michigan we do a major study of of hr organization and leadership practices and then we analyze those in terms of that model what and 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 by the way that data set is huge we now are pro- approximating 100,000 people in that data set and not only do we have the largest data set that's been continuously done over almost 35 years but we all, uh that we all it's huge it's a huge data set has 100 over 100,000 people in the data set now um but it's also the largest database in India there's some very interesting findings out of India which we have time if we have time we can explore some of those um uh and so every 5 years we survey the world and we ask and and we ask lots and lots of questions the survey it's frustrating because it's too long 
but we're trying to explore all the possibilities. And what we're looking for is what are the practices that have greatest impact on business performance? We're not asking what, 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 uh, uh, what practices do people like or what practices do result in, in, in leaders or employees being happy. We ask what are the practices that impact business results, that impact market share, that impact uh, rep, uh, market capitalization. We're asking business results. And then we ask, once we identify those, and we say, so which of these are not being done very well today? And that's where we, that's how we identify what, what book needs to be written. Okay, okay. And there's a, there's a terrific process to go. Now I'll really come to the, uh, the, the webinar, which we have, I think, a lot of uh, uh, in, information you have shared now. Uh, so uh, to all the attendees, uh, the topic for the webinar is there, uh, how leadership will adopt in post-COVID times. We will be talking about different concepts which are affecting or which are going to affect leadership in this phase of getting unlocked and going back to the system. And also when a lot of majority of people will be working out, out of home, there will be a lot of fear uh, of uh, employees coming back to the organization and there will be a lot of mismatch that some people are working from the organization, some people are working from their homes. Uh, so how will leadership really adapt? We are going to talk about that, we are going to talk about how we'll bring in sustainability uh, through leadership to drive continuous results. Uh, uh, when my first question about really about this topic is, which I want you to uh, throw some light on, is so what has really changed? Like if we have to do a simple difference between leadership three months uh, in let's say in March 2020 and let's say leadership in June 2020, how has this? How can we differentiate? So what according to you, what has got this much different in in, in terms of leadership? I think that's a, that's a great question, and I love this question. At one level, as an organization, this the, this COVID nineteen business has created huge amounts of pain and suffering throughout the world. About two two months ago, one of my best friends passed away uh, from the COVID nineteen. Big tragedy for his family, for his friends. So this has been a great tragedy. From an organization theory perspective and from a leadership perspective, this has been a, a fascinating. Time. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, let, let me give you a quick vignette that I shared actually with one of your Indian colleagues a couple of days ago. Sure. Uh, last January, my daughter and I ran the uh, the, the Disney the Dis Walt Disney half marathon okay. at Disney World. Uh, I flew in from Ab from Abu Dhabi where I was working and. Um, uh, and we arrived late at one of the Disney hotels. It was it was after midnight. Mm -hmm. So I asked I asked the desk clerk, who happened to be, by interestingly enough, from India. I, so I asked him, "How do you like your job?" Now the the lobby was empty because it was after midnight. Mm -hmm. So I asked, well, "How do you like your job?" He said, "I love my job." I said, "But you're working the graveyard shift. Why do you love your job?" He says, "I love my job because I don't have a boss." Okay. Okay. Oh, but I'm the only person here. And I get my work done, I'm efficient, I, I can look at my own work, I hold myself accountable, and that's why I love my job. Anyway, now let's take that in the COVID situation. So what's happened during COVID-19? Uh, a good portion of the world's workforce now has been working from home for a period of time. This, this, this webinar we're having now today 
might have been held in a hotel in in uh, in, in Bangalore somewhere, okay. and uh, and we'd have the session there. But now we're doing it here virtually, um, and and what that has forced uh, is it this being separate physically separated and not having bosses directly overseeing everything that's going on has forced bosses to trust their employees mm-hmm. so that's this and and Pete and leaders have been forced to adopt the trust the leadership trust paradigm not because it's instinctive to them but because it's net it's mandated because mm-hmm. they can't they're not face to face with their employees anymore right. uh, I have uh, I'm familiar with I'm, I wish we had more research on it right now, but we don't. <laughs> right now, but I know of three, one, two large surveys and two company surveys that have been conducted during the last uh, three or four months. <laughs> and and each one of those surveys have, have, have provided fascinating results. And that is during this time period where people have been isolated at home there have been three or four basic findings across that research one is people feel more trusted well they not only feel more trusted they are be that their, their leaders have to trust them more because they don't have any alternative correct second people in the in the context of being trusted they're they feel more productive they see decisions being made faster and interestingly enough they see themselves even collaborating better. These are surprising results. So people are either this, along those dimensions of collaboration, productivity, uh, speed of decision-making, and trust. Uh, those people have said in all four of those surveys that, that, that they think that things are either the same or better than they were uh, than in the past. Okay, so the first paradigm shift is trust. Not because they read, I mean, I love Steve Covey and whatnot, not because they read read a, a leadership guru or because they think that trust is really important. Mm-hmm. Because they have, they have to trust, they have no alternative. And what they're finding then is when they've trusted their people, it's unleashed human creativity, it's unleashed productivity. It's even unleashed greater collaboration and trust with each other. So trust is one major, one major paradigm shift. Another paradigm shift is, you know, we've been talking about flexible organization and adaptable organization and, and agile organizations forever. And actually, actually our, your Indian colleague, our Indian colleague, C.K. Prahalad, back in about 2000, 2001, was the one that really pushed agility yes. as a dominant leadership and organizational paradigm and and the reason so leaders are having to create organizations the more agile hmm. and the reason is they had no option covid covid 19 hit they right. had to be agile or they're going to go broke okay. so they had to how are we going to do things differently <laughs> and one of the one of the aspects of agility that relates back to trust is that um uh, is that in the process of being isolated, they were free of bureaucratic controls, and people 
people had to figure out how to do their work best without uh, without being supervised either by a boss or by a set of rules procedures. Because the rules that were applicable in January, a lot of the rules that were applicable in January simply were not applicable four months later. Absolutely. And so agility became important, but it became facilitated uh, it became facilitated by a reduction in bureaucratic oversight. HUL had been working on on bureaucratic, on bureauc- you know HUL of course, yes, yes. Uh, has been uh, has been working on re- reducing bureaucratic infrastructures for many many years. So when COVID nineteen hit, they were probably as ready as any com- any country any company in the world. That is not just HUL but Unilever as a whole. Yes. The COVID, uh, the COVID situation, uh, because they'd been working at, re- at getting people to feel empowered, mm. getting people to feel that they make decisions on their own without having a lot of bureaucratic oversight and infrastructure. So agility, but now agility, we've been talking about it, but now throughout the world, agility as a leadership paradigm has been forced on people. And the last paradigm that has has happened is the flow of information that the, that people simply had to be able to get gather information from the marketplace, uh, prioritize it, analyze it, share it, uh, utilize it, debate it uh, differently now than they have ever before in the future. So, recognizing the importance of information. The other thing, if I if I could for just a minute, while sure. while we're, we're on that, <clears throat> mention, we have found that in in our research on HR. Now, this is HR and leadership practices. <clears throat> that uh, HR professionals that are involved in the orchestration of information have and 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 have that as a dominant agenda within their HR department create greater value for customers and shareholders than anything else they can do. It has, when HR becomes involved in helping to orchestrate the flow of information, then that has more influence than measurement, rewards, staffing, promotions. It, it, it just, it, 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 it for example, uh, uh, when HR folks get involved in that flow of information, that has twice the impact on HR's value in creating value for customers twice as much than anything else happens in HR. But consistent with our research, they don't do that very well. But there are, so think about it this way. We found that there's three segments to to the flow of information. One, what the first step is you have to access the right information, then you have to analyze it accurately, you have to debate it, you have to share it, and then you have to utilize it. And if any one of those steps goes to zero, then the whole equation goes to zero. And why that's important is, you know, McKinsey and other and other leading consulting firms, lots of consultants say, well, the critical issue is is um, is gather, is getting the right information. Mm-hmm. And our research says that's only the beginning. Once you've got the information, if you don't prioritize it, then that information is irrelevant. If you've got it and you prioritize it, but you don't debate it and find out what the meaning is within that information, then it's useless. And if you get it, you prioritize it, you debate it and analyze it, but you don't utilize it, it's still zero. 
So all of that has to be seen as an integrated whole. The question is, who's responsible for making sure that integration occurs? Now, if you think that one of the primary responsibilities of leaders and HR professionals is to create an organization that wins, to create the organization capabilities that can beat the competition. That's what brings together leadership and HR is the organization capability. Now, in today's world, information is clearly a, uh, a source of competitive advantage and, and HR and the companies that create that kind of capability will win and those that don't will not win. And in COVID-19, we've had to think about different ways of accessing, analyzing, prioritizing, and debating information we've never had before. Let me give you one final example. Sure. Several years, as part of our, I've been, in the last what, four years, I've talked to about 29, 31 different companies in the financial sector, high-tech sector, defense sector, and fast-moving consumer goods sector. And, and, what, and, and what I've found is that those are all a multiplicative relationship. As I indicated, if any one portion of that model goes to zero, the whole thing goes to zero. In, that, in the process of doing that research, I came across an executive who's now a very senior executive in a very well-known company. I won't reveal his name or the company's name. Sure. Uh, but he, he's now a senior executive. 25 year, 20 years ago, when he was kind of a junior executive, he made a brilliant decision that made his company a huge amount of money. Okay. At that time, his company could give spot bonuses. So his boss called him in and said, you know, this that was a brilliant decision you made. He gathered the right information, made the right decision, and, and your, an, your analysis was absolutely brilliant. Here's your spot bonus, $10,000. The guy said, oh, that's terrific. Thank you very much. And then he got up to walk out and his boss said, by the way, who did you share that, that info? How did you, who did you share that experience with? He said, well, I didn't share it with anybody. He said, come on, sit back down. Could I see your check again? And, and he said, yeah, he handed him the check. And his boss ripped it up in front of his face. Mm. He said, your job your job, if you're going to be a senior executive in this company, your job is not to be smart. Your job is to make my company smart. Okay, that's the power of it. And he says he's never forgotten that. And so every time he has the opportunity to access, analyze, he makes sure that that information is shared. And he makes sure that anybody that reports to him is constantly making the information hold greater than the sum of the parts. <laughs> Right. Okay. okay. I think that's a great story, by the way. That's yeah. one of my favorite stories of late. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think uh, it's it's more about not just managing yourself in these times, but also so managing other people is something which is very critical. And as you just mentioned, that passing on the knowledge is something which is very, very essential for any organization to really build and become more sustainable. Right? Now, and, and you're absolutely right. So is that, a, is that a technical issue? Is it a cultural issue? That's a cultural issue, and and that's where leaders and HR have to work together to make sure that the culture in place that leverages information for the sake of agility, 
that then facilitates trust. Sure. At uh, least I think. Yeah. That's my yeah. opinion. <laughs> yeah. uh, so when you mention a, a law about information as a concept in terms of getting the information, uh, prioritizing the information, processing the information, uh, that two to three more things uh, which really encompasses leadership. So uh, I just want to understand from your end, if you can share some insights as to, uh, so trust is something which is very important, uh, which you have mentioned, it's uh, indispensable. You have to have that trust on your folks. And if you, I think if you don't trust, then you have not hired the right people maybe. Uh, but how do you think has empathy, compassion, and AI, which is emotional intelligence evolved in the last three months? Because what, what was happening in three months back is that you have got hundreds of people on your floor. You can directly go to anyone. You can see anyone, right? But suddenly, there is, there is no one. There is no flow. There, there is no flow at all. And it, it, it's all uh, laptops and it's all Zoom call, Microsoft Teams, where you, you can still have that meeting, but that physical proximity is absolutely nil. So how does these concept of compassion, empathy, and emotional intelligence now come into the picture? If you can share some insights. Yeah. The companies that I've seen that have handled this situation best have had two characteristics as a foundation. One is they didn't create they didn't create a culture of empathy and trust out of out of a vacuum. <laughs> They've been working on that for years and years. And you know, we've seen that throughout, by the way, in many companies in India. Uh, throughout, throughout all the throughout the Tata companies, through emphasis, through H, through HUL, through Mahindra, Mahindra, it just the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. So that foundation. Second is as, as this situation has 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 uh, evolved, then then they then they acted with a great deal of sensitivity to the people that were being impacted by it. And they had to provide a, a, a feeling of stability that kept that gave people confidence that leaders knew what they were doing, and that um, uh, and that they were acting in the best interest of the employees. I'm a great believer, a, a passionate believer, that the driving force in business has to be the customer. Okay. Because if employ if you have if you have happy employees that aren't happy making customers happy, then you've got the wrong employees. Mm. You, you suggested that earlier in our discussion, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, what you want to make sure is you, you've got ha- employees that are happy making customers happy. That's that's the uh, the key issue, and that and that is built up over over time. Now, so how does empathy fit into this? The, the leaders that have handled this well, uh, that I've seen, have 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 recognized that as customer focused, customer centric as they are, they had to kind of shift their attention to stabilize the workforce, to give the workforce the confidence that the company was going to be okay, that it was going to succeed, that we'd get we we would we would get through this. That is, we would get through this together. And they created that sense of teamwork. But at the same time, as vestiges of bureaucracy, of control, tried to insert control 
where control was a counterproductive and b impossible, then then it became an issue. Do we want to do as we as we come out of COVID nineteen? Do we want to continue? Do, do we want to continue to elicit trust? Mm. To continue uh, to have empathy for people to help them to feel empowered, focused, self self regulating. Um, or are we going to put them back into a bureaucratic control structure, which is how things have functioned for the last decades? Mm-hmm. And that's and this is an inflection point for many companies. Mm-hmm. And the companies that are able to continue the trust and empathy, I think, are going to be way ahead of others. You know, one one example of empathy. I think sometimes we tend to underestimate empathy. Uh, Years ago, Bob O'Neill, who was the Secretary Secretary of the Treasury, I believe, in, in the U.S. government, was hired by, when, when, when the, the, there was a, a change in the presidency, he became uh, the CEO at uh, Alcoa. And, his, and he said, so what's going to be your major message to, Al, to the Alcoa workforce and to its shareholders and to its customers? He said, safety. Oh, you know what happened to Alcoa's market share over the next nine months? It dropped like a rock. You know, we, you mean we've got a softy here that's going to be concerned about safety instead of market share and profits and growth and performance and productivity. Instead, he's talking about safety. And, the, and, and its market capitalization just dropped. Then, over a period of time, people asked him why. The employees had asked him why said, because my first obligation is to bring you from your families in the morning, have you work hard and to have you return to your families in the evening with your eye, with your hands, your eyes, your, your fingers, uh, uh, and your, and your emotions intact so that you can be back in a healthy family. Mm-hmm. For a long time, they did a talk, 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 talk. They just didn't. This is just another CEO trying to kiss up to us. And then an event happened where the most productive employee, the most productive plant manager had an accident and he didn't report it. It was kind of, it wasn't a big accident, but it was, it was a minor accident, but it's one that should have been reported. And he didn't, and he's this most effective plant manager. And he didn't report this breach of safety violations. So now it's only a minor breach, didn't have any overall big impact. But now what, what do you do as the CEO that's been talking about safety? And now your most important, most productive plant manager has made a slight error on safety. O'Neill thought about it for about an hour and called him in and fired him. At that point, now notice what he's doing. He's having total empathy for the workforce. At that point, the workforce said, boy, this guy is, re- is really walking his talk. We will throw our efforts behind him. Mm-hmm. And over the next two or three years, market share grew, market capitalization grew, market profitability grew. So empathy is not just this warm, fuzzy thing that a lot of consultants talk about. It can be a core competitive advantage. Now, that's part of the empathy scenario that's internal empathy but in but over time there has to be also an a mutual empathy between 
the customers and the employees, right? Another form of empathy, do the, do the employees have empathy for the customers? Now, why that's important is sometimes companies forget that the only reason that they exist, the only reason companies exist is to meet the requirements of the marketplace, right? As soon as companies start, stop meeting the purpose for which society brings them into existence, then society will put them out of business. Okay. So the question is, how do you how do you create and sustain empathy for um, for the customer? So empathy is just isn't from manage, from leaders to employees, but also from employees to customers. Do the customers feel and have compassion, and do they have an emotional connection out to their customers? Right. Good. That makes. I hope I hope that makes sense. Let me yeah. give you an example. Sure. You know, about several years ago, bought bought JLR. JLR has been in trouble. Uh, ja Jaguar Land Rover. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but in its history, Jaguar Land Rover has had some marvelous success stories. Years ago, they had a CEO, John Agan, and uh, and at that time, uh, when Agan took over. Uh, Jaguar was rated number 32 out of 34 in the JD Powers Quality Survey. They're right at the bottom. Mm. And Egan came in and it was a disaster. So he said, I need to understand what's going on. I, so he, he had audio recordings made of customer interviews, several dozen. And <clears throat> so he would listen to those, those audio recordings and uh, of these customers who were really, really angry. Think about, you know, several years ago, Jaguar, if you could own a Jaguar, that was the most luxurious, sexy car you could have, you could ever have. And people loved the brand, but they saw Jaguar, just the, 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 the workforce and leadership destroying the brand that they loved. So they, they had all these, these uh, uh, these audio tapes made of, of customers who were generally really, really angry. Mm. So he listened to these, these audio tapes on his way home. Then he, he'd, he'd go into his house at the end of the day. Because mm. now by the time he's listening to all these things, he's really angry. <laughs> he'd slam the door, yell at his, yell at his kids, and, and go upstairs without dinner. Because he's so angry. And after a few weeks of this, he said, I'm angry. And then he looked around the boardroom one day, the senior management boardroom. He said, look it, I'm the only one that's angry around here. Now notice what's happening. He's becoming empathetic with the customers. He's starting to feel in his heart what the customers are feeling. So now he, he looked around his boardroom one day and said, look it, I'm the only one that's angry. So he had dozen, several dozen copies made of these, of these uh, audio recordings and, they, and, he, and he made his management team listen to these. So he's, now he's got a couple of dozen people going home after listening to these tapes, slamming the door, yelling at the kids, kicking the dog, and going upstairs without dinner. It wasn't, and, and, and one day after a couple of weeks of this, they looked around and said, we're at, now notice what he's doing. He's creating empathy in his leadership team with the customer. Then he had hundreds of these videotapes, these audio tapes made, and were distributed throughout the workforce. And, and now he had, several you know hundreds of people that work for jlr listening to the customer developing this deep empathy um, and going home kicking the dog slamming the door kicking the dog yelling at the kids and going upstairs without dinner it wasn't great for family life in central england 
That was the foundation of a radical turnaround. As people said, we can't, if we don't address, if we don't have greater empathy and translate that empathy with our customer into what we do on the inside, then we're gonna die. Mm -hmm. For the next eight years, Jaguar went from number 32 to number eight in overall quality. So you have internal empathy, as I talked about in the in the Bob O'Neill story, but also you have to have, there has to be a connection of empathy between the customers and the employees. That sure. Makes sense? Yes, Does yes, absolutely, sense? absolutely. The JLR story is definitely a lot of connection can be built on this thing, great. Uh, so, okay, uh, the next question is something which, which uh, is more like a comparison. I'll just give a comparison. So. Whenever we are in crisis, so right now the world, uh, not just COVID, we have got a lot of environmental crisis. And uh, so whenever there's a crisis, we come out with a set of guidelines and a set, set of to-do lists which we have to do. So if you ever heard of sustainable, sustainable Development Goals, which has got 17 different criteria on which we have to improve. Now my next question is that if we have to create that sustainable leadership goals or sustainable leadership method, what are the pillars which you think should really be there in terms of making leadership really sustainable in these times? Because you have to drive the results continuously because you're, if you don't, your organization is, up, up, is is getting into a lot of trouble. So you have to manage a lot more things compared to how you were doing four months from now. So what are those pillars to make leadership sustainable? I think that's a, that's a, that's a great question and, and every Every, you know, I've talked to several dozen leaders over the last few months, and and everyone, almost everyone, uh, is is grappling with that issue. So, so let me address what I think I've picked out as the as the common themes sure, sure. For, for the folks that I consider to be the most effective leaders. And and here they are. Number one is uh, they they have to have be able to, now again the question is if you're going to have sustainable results in the midst of this crisis what the leaders need to do yes we already talked about one thing they need to be able to convey a sense of, of stability and optimism okay. that we'll get through this together uh we'll we'll, we'll be okay we'll, we'll get we'll get through this and they have to act in a way uh, to do that they, if they, if, if companies have waited around to see what everybody else is doing and then responded, I'm not very optimistic about their future because they're not conveying confidence and stability in the midst of this change. The companies that have done it well have gotten out in front, have created virtual platforms with working rules, have enabled people to to, to uh, be trusted, and have moved forward. So. Maintaining that sense of stable confidence, I think it has to be a foundation in, in, in this kind of a crisis. And second, there have to be clear expectations. Expectations have to be really clear. Um, uh, you know, if we circle around to trust, um, trust is both, trust is primarily an output. That is, we trust people not after they've done things. You don't trust people first, you trust people after they've proven they're worthy of trust, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you, you hinted at it right at the beginning, but you said, 
yeah, we trust people because we've hired the right people in the first place. Right, right, you right. Know? If, if you don't, then we have not hired them. Correct. Yeah, you, you don't trust random people that are walking down the street correct. to do a thorough screening program and therefore you trust them. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so you have to have clear expectations. So if you go back to Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs trusted his employees, but he had extremely high and clear expectations. And not only did he trust his workforce, but his workforce trusted him because they know he was going to be absolutely consistent in his expectations. They may not like it because he was very, very aggressive with his expectations. But he, he said, uh, uh, is, is, is Jobs an equal opportunity employer? Yes, he treats us, he treats us all like dogs. Uh, so he, so the point is, he was absolutely consistent with these high expectations. Right. And, and so the issue is, in the midst of, of this kind of, 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 of chaos, there still needs to be high performance expectations. And those need to be, I think those need to be clear. And third then, people need to be held accountable for those, for those, uh, for those results, for those accountability, for uh, those expectations, and it's not just and it's not just for their output results, but also for the behaviors they're existing. For example, have they learned how to communicate clearly and well virtually? That's a different communication skill that we'd have when we're face to face. So, number one, stability. Number two is have high expectations. Number three is to um, have clear accountabilities and four and i think the fourth is the most important and that in it and it's kind of goes back to a little bit of the stability um, in the midst of chaos then then the leaders have to convey the and reinforce the purpose of the organization in the first place they have to infuse a sense of purpose that gives meaning and stability to to the workforce, they need to remember this. This company now. Now this company used to be in a building. Now this company is scattered over thousands of homes around the world. Right. 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 We need to remember what what unites us hmm. is not the bureaucratic infrastructure that has united us for many years. What unites us now is a is a culture of common purpose. And and we need to and and leaders have to maybe in focus on on a residual powerful uh, 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 purpose more under these conditions than they ever have before. They may make triple or quadruple the amount of time and effort they 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 spend infusing meaning and purpose into the workforce. And by the way, that comes back to empathy compassion, meaning, and mental health within the organization. All right, great. Uh, so when we, uh, before we really open up for the audience, really ask some questions to you directly or th through the Q&A tab. Uh, so audience, you can uh, just put in your questions if you have, or you can just ra raise your hand. Uh, there's a tab in Zoom link uh, for the questions. Before that, I've got this last bit of questions which is there. So now I've talked uh, the amount, the number of days where COVID has really affected us is around 100, and 
number 100 is not a big number to really uh, gather a lot of research lot of surveys as you have also mentioned earlier uh, so i am not going to ask you what is the right way of leadership in this coming time i am just going to ask you what are the don'ts of leadership uh, as a construct which the leader should really not do in 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 terms of uh, going forward because uh, the do's are something which would come with time but i i i am more concerned about don'ts because what happens is that such scenarios are once in a lifetime thing and you are bound to make mistakes more compared to the good which you intend to do so what leader should really do in order to uh, make sure that he is not making any mistakes so this want to understand the don'ts of leadership in these times well, that's that's a very good question um it, it, it's a difficult question but it's a good question i like this yeah. question uh, <clears throat> number 1 is uh I think one don't is don't treat all your people equally. Now that sounds a little bit counterintuitive based on everything we've been talking about. <laughs> But under these conditions, leaders need to understand who it is that creates va- the greatest value in your company. And who and and those people need to be amplified and focused on and 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 people that 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 the leaders every company every company has people in the have it has employees who are more interested in 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 staying safe in maybe creating creating bureaucracies and not performing not working hard not being creative not being innovative not putting in extra hours every company has those and the danger is if you treat the high performers the same way you, excuse me you treat the low performers the same way you treat the high performers you're going to undermine the motivation mm. purpose and enthusiasm of the high performers so under these conditions of change they need to be a, a, a more acutely aware of, of of who the key value creators are and to emphasize them in your communications and making sure they're confident and what what not and and feel safe and secure so that that's one one don't don't and again it's counterintuitive don't treat everybody equally otherwise you're going to undermine the ability of the firm over the long run to perform the second the second uh don't is to uh is to rely on rules processes and the policies to guide your company through these troublesome times uh again some leaders um we did some research with a doctoral student several years ago where we looked at at at, at the relationship between financial performance and cultural intensity and what we found is when firms had no cultural intensity that everybody could think and behave everybody any way they wanted to the financial performance is really low then as 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 P, as the as the organization would integrate and work together then financial performance went up but then the question was a fascinating question and i i I'll ask you this and we don't have enough time for me to cross examine you maybe embarrass you in front of your colleagues but i so I won't do that so uh the question is what happens when culture unity becomes extreme that is when everybody starts to think and behave the same way 
lot of that's community, right? That's mm -hmm. culture is how people think and behave. Yeah. So when everybody thinks and behaves the same way, is that going to amplify performance or is it going to detract from performance? Mm -hmm. Interesting question. We didn't know the reason. We didn't know the answer to that question. There are theories that explain both. Mm -hmm. And what we found was the, the performance line split. Those companies where there is a unified and, and, and clearly cooperative consensus that we're working together to meet market requirements, guess what? <laughs> Their performance went up. Yeah, yeah. If there's a consolidated, unified focus on the customer and beating the competition, those companies won. <laughs> those companies that focused internally on rules, procedures, processes, as they became more focused on rules, procedures, and processes, their performance dropped. Mm. So in the midst of change, leaders need to be careful not to rely upon rules, processes, and procedures to unify the organization and keep and give it momentum and direction. Mm. That is, they need to reemphasize the importance of market awareness, market making, keeping ourselves in touch with customers, and keeping the organization and the culture customer-centric. Mm. Good. So that's that's the second don't is sure. don't fall back and rely upon mm. uh, rules, procedures, process, and bureaucracy in the midst of these kind of changes. And some executives will have a tendency to do that. Mm. That's why I raised that issue. Okay. Okay. Shows make sense. Great. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I uh, I will just open it to audience. So we have got Arpita. I will, Arpita, I'm just putting you on the podium. You can directly ask the question. So let, let's just... Uh, Arpita, you're on the podium. You can ask the question to Wayne directly. Hello, sir. Like, is there any age groups for a leader? Like, who can be the best leader? Hey, who will be the best leader? Uh, the best leader will be the one I think that is that will do all the things we've been talking about today, and don't do the things we just talked about. Uh, okay. I don't think that that has anything. With, I don't think it has anything to do with ethnicity. I don't think it has anything to do with gender. I don't think it has to do with social class and status. I think the things we just talked about uh, can be done by by men. It can be done by women. It can be done by different people, different sexual orientation. Be done in a lot of anybody follow these guidelines i think will be successful sure sure uh, okay. Okay. so uh when there there is another question which is there in the q a tab that uh, how should uh, employees deal with layoffs in the current scenario and there's not a leadership question but someone has really asked this well, that's really a telling question. Uh, 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 now, this is a U.S. sample, uh, so I know that that's, uh, that's not going to be the same as in India. But in the United States, more than half of the CEOs in the Fortune 500 companies said that they do not expect uh, staffing levels to ever get back to what they were at the beginning of this year. So that, so that's, 
that's uh, I was almost startled by those statistics. And the reason is that they're finding that this virtual world makes the workforce more efficient. So they, they can get the value added work done with fewer people. So the question is, what do, what, so I think that's going to be a reality. There's going to be, work will be done more efficiently and there'll be need for fewer people. So how does, how does society gonna deal with that? Well, first of all, how, how are individuals going to deal with it? One is they'll, they'll have to learn how to deal with this new world of technology. When they go into job interviews, they'll be able, they must be able to talk the world of technology. They have to be able to talk the, the, the world of technology. They'll be able to, they must be able to convince uh, employers that they have the ability to work virtually. So I think, again over, again, over half the CEOs not only said that they won't go back to the same staffing levels, but they believe that part of the reason for that is that there'll be much more working at home instead of working uh, at uh, back in the office. So uh, they'll have to educate themselves technically. Second, they'll have to become more agile in their own careers. Uh, they'll have to be able to say what are the trends that are going on in the marketplace, in the, in the world, what are the trends, and they'll have to skill themselves up to meet those needs. And finally, as you might guess, based upon, if you'll notice I'm repeating my first very first principles, was they'll have to understand how to live in a, how to live and succeed and prosper in a world of high-tech technology where information is the, is, the, is what, is the raw material the companies will use to create competitive advantage. Uh, and we, by the way, we know that already, at least the United States, uh, by the way, you, you, excuse me, uh, I look at uh, the growth in emphasis and Tata Consulting Services and, and other IT consulting firms, uh, their growth pattern over the last decade has been astonishing. And the same thing's happening in the United States. The number of open jobs in the United States in the high tech sector are staggering. And, but, but that's going to require a new set of skills and, uh, skills and knowledge for people to fit into that new world. But the point is, the, the opportunities are there, but people that used to build cars with their hands are going to have to have to build information infrastructures that give insights uh, that we didn't know before, that they didn't know before, and their companies didn't know before. Okay. So, when I have got Nama, uh, on, he wants to come to the podium. Uh, Nama, you're online. You can ask him directly. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah, you can ask. Yeah, you're audible. Yes, uh, good evening, sir. Thank you very much for having this type of session via this uh, Zoom. That uh, in this, uh, due, due to the uh, in this uh, pandemic uh, situation, the leaders also to be motivated themselves. So, what are the advice you are giving for uh, the leaders, uh, those who are motivating others? But we, we uh, as a leader, we are running the business or we are running the team. What what are the motivation we have to get ourselves? What are the tools we can use, sir? That's a great question. Your question, you know, I believe maybe one of the two or three greatest, certainly the greatest business thinker of the last 20 or 30 years, 
and one of the top two or three of the last century was was your colleague, my colleague, C.K. Prahalad. Uh, C.K. used to love to tell the story that you probably heard of, of the two men uh, walking through the forest and a bear starts to chase them and and one of them sits down on a log and starts to put on his running shoes and the other one says you have to run uh, or the bear is going to catch us need us he says no I don't need to outrun the bear I just need to outrun you uh, so that's and that's one of the things that leaders that will motivate leaders is, is is we live in a world of hyper competition you know we, we've seen that in every sector in India the, the level of competition just keeps getting higher and higher and uh, uh, and so the issue is how do you keep how do you as a leader keep yourself in touch with reality um, um, Bezos, you know, the, the, the founder of, of Amazon, said the, the most critical resource that a company has is its attention. That is what it pays attention to. And, uh, and so the starting point to keep a leader motivated is to, is to make sure your attention is focused on the right issues in the marketplace. So you not only know what the marketplace requires, but those, so that you also can seek opportunities to, to meet customer needs before the customer knows those needs exist. And that's what Amazon has done better than any company in the world so far that we know of, uh, except for Steve Jobs inventing the, inventing the iPhone. Uh, so, so, that, so I think that's one. And then second, there needs to be a continual upgrading of technical know-how. Third, and if I could ask, add one other, I, 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 I had great admiration for Steve Jobs. Too frequently, there's a currently a big debate in the HR literature between whether a, um, a good leader is, is an individual contributor or whether he's an instit or she's an institution builder. And clearly Steve Jobs is a pretty smart guy. But Wozniak was his technical leader. Wozniak, Steve's job was to build the organization, was to build the institution. And the same thing's true for Bill Gates, same thing's true for Peter Thiel, same thing's true, and the list goes on and on. And, uh, and, and so the issue is to think about how you, once you understand the reality of the marketplace, then how do you create an organization with individuals that are high potential, very smart, very capable, so that your job as a leader is to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. So those are the two key steps to understand what the marketplace requires and to create the organization capabilities that enable you to meet the requirements of those marketplace of the market of those marketplace requirements better than anybody else in the world. And those are the two building blocks of successful leadership. That's a great question, by the way. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for your explanation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Namo. Thank you. All right. Uh, Wayne, there's another question which is there. Uh, so, uh, it, this is this is not exactly a leadership question, but I, I thought you might add some value to this. Now, uh, Nitya is asking that uh, if if an organization is growing backwards, so that the, the products are not getting sold and uh, it's all due to COVID-19. 
apart from layoffs and salary cuts is there any third way to really go about it uh, of uh, still keeping your the employees with yourself and uh, and hoping that something will improve tomorrow so how should leader really uh, adapt to this situation if we were in a classroom i would open that up for a class discussion because that's a, that's a <laughs> it's not because i don't have opinions but i think there's lots of opinions yes. i don't think there's any worth of truth on that that's a great one. obviously every company is is almost every company except for amazon and maybe uh, anyway few and are 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 having difficulties and the and so the challenge is to be able to know how you're doing relative to your competitors obviously very few companies are selling are set, are having the same volume of sales now that they had uh, had 6 months ago <laughs> uh, and and that's going to be a reality into the foreseeable future so the question is uh, and some companies are 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 holding on to all their employees but some will find that they're going to have to lay some off or they'll go bankrupt. Mm. I think that's just the reality of the current situation. So one of the key issues then is what criteria do you use to determine who's going to stay and who's going to leave? And that's a very very difficult question. If 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 your company has enough has enough backlog of profitability and profits in the bank to be able to sustain the entire workforce through this period of time that's fine and i think that should, that should be a high priority cuz the company simply doesn't have the money it has its its ran its run it, its uh, credit limit at the local banks to the extent possible then the only option for survive to help the other 90% to keep their jobs over the long run you may have to eliminate 10% of the workforce and and accrue the the cost savings that those 10% represent. I hate to say that, but that's the, that's the reality. The obligation is to the 90%, not to the 10%. For the 10% that you can't you might not be able to keep, you better make sure that those are the low performing, that those are those are low performing people in low value added jobs. That's the that's the that becomes the two criteria. Those become the two criteria for who for who might potentially leave. low performing people in low value added positions and 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 then i think you have a moral obligation as much as possible to help them find work to help them upskill and to provide a buffer as they leave so that their families don't starve even while they won't get being paid as much money clearly those families will have to adjust their lifestyle uh and that's happening around the world um half again that C, that CEO survey and this is in the United States uh 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 half the half the CEOs in the US say that 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 they've had to cut salaries during this during this time period in addition to laying people off so so that's i think a reality and and leaders are going to have to step up and as painful as that is that'll have to happen in some company Uh, so when there's another question now there's a very it, it sounds very simple but i'm not so sure if the answer is going to be that simple uh so uh mathily has asked that uh, 
how should the people leader or any leader for that matter keep the employees happy in these such a testing times of sadness and challenges around us how can we still stay happy and motivated what should leader really do in in, in these times um that, that's a good that by the way thank you for that question that's a that's a brilliant question for years and years uh there is a there uh in organizations especially in hr there was kind of a happiness paradigm mm-hmm. if somehow we got people to be happy they'll be performing right if we could create a happy workforce we'll have a high performing workforce and that's just empirically i hate to say it there's not much research that supports that in fact there's research to the opposite and it's a simple logic uh you have two groups of people you can have happy you can have high performing ingenious aggressive sales oriented uh in innovative uh, hard working high performance individuals and you want them to be happy right you do want them you want them to be happy but then you've got another group of people who might be happy who are happy that they haven't been found out that they don't work hard they don't perform but nobody's discovered them and they're happy because they haven't been discovered that they're not providing any value so who do you want to have be happy well the answer is pretty obvious but when we talk about the problem is that sometimes we when we impose the happiness paradigm and logic on the whole organization that's irrelevant because you've got every company as we talked about early has some people that you don't want to be happy you want them to if they're not performing you don't want them to be happy i'm a non-performer but i'm happy being a non-performer that's a stupid statement right so we need to be careful putting this happiness overlay onto everyone if somebody is not is a low performer you need to give them a chance to improve but if they can never if you can't help them to be happy meeting the requirements of of the of the shareholders and the customer then the company doesn't exist to make non-performers happy the mm. company this to meet the requirements of the purpose of, of society so that that's one perspective on happiness the other one is and and that's and and the second perspective is relevant especially for today's covid world is the research that we the paradigm we used to believe is that happy people are productive people okay the more recent research on productivity says it's not that happy people are productive but that productive people become happy mm correct Okay. So the lever is not happiness, the lever is productivity, empowerment and self-fulfillment. It's not happiness will be the outcome of helping people to be high performing and know they're high performing and they're high performing because they're doing it and they'll feel fulfilled, they'll feel meaning and purpose in their lives and that when will make them happy as they go home every day. Great, great, great. Those are great insights. the great insights uh, <clears throat> right uh, so uh, i think we have about 5 10 more minutes i think we can begin take up for more question if that is okay with you okay yeah i'm i got i've got it yeah, about a few more minutes sure sure okay uh, so there's another question which is there is uh, so we have uh, so 
an anonymous person who is there so i'm just framing his question uh, so we have always talked about the difference between a manager and a leader um, that has been a generation long uh, discussion which is going on now in today's time where is the overlap which is happening for example uh, that for an existing manager so what are the first steps he should be taking in terms of becoming a leader because the times are not the same and uh, uh, on the job learning might not be the best solution to really go about managing and uh, uh, themselves and becoming a leader so what 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 is your thought on becoming a manager uh, leader in, in okay. these times uh, whoever anonymous is that's a, that's a great question uh, you know i've been teaching that distinction between leadership and manager for, for 20 years and, and and nobody's actually asked the question so how do you make the transition from being a manager to being a leader so let me suggest four steps one is managers tend to be internally focused leaders tend to be externally focused leaders tend to be results driven managers tend to be process oriented they manage processes leaders manage results leaders uh uh managers seek to control that's one of the that's one of the pillars of, of management leaders tend to empower and they empower through a, a whole variety of means delegating authority delegating purpose delegating information uh delegating accountability the last the last transition is leaders infuse purpose uh uh managers simply don't care about purpose they they're interested only in profits and and uh and money whereas leaders infuse purpose so those are the if you're a manager you want to become a leader that's your checklist to go to make transitions on each one of those four dimensions that's a great question i wish you had been anonymous i'd like to congratulate you for a great question so uh this one of the last question is there i think we're running out of time so shri has asked about this thing that you mentioned about uh, uh the high performing employees who are there in your organization you need to uh, make them stay in the system but uh, Her, her her question is that how should we really make the employees high performing in these time and what are the things which a leader should do in these times to improve and enhance the productivity oh that's a great question uh <clears throat> so um in these times people need to set their goal i mean i first of all i don't think there's any magic answer to this i think leaders whether it's face to face it won't be face to face right now but it'd be virtual face it'd be virtual meetings face to face still need to negotiate goals and accountabilities responsibilities with each employee and and then they need to meet, meet regularly with their with their employees as individuals and with teams to to make sure that these these uh uh accountability expectations uh are 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 that that each employee are making is making progress in accomplishing their um uh, their are, are we still on by the way 
I'm right here. I'm right here. Okay, sorry. Uh, I mean, you're good looking. You're, you're a good-looking guy, but that triangle it wasn't as pretty as you are. Uh, so, um, uh, so anyway, remind me of the question that that threw me off a little bit. I'm going to say the question again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the person asking, she is asking about uh, keeping the employees. How, how should we make the employees' uh, productivity level at high? Like what? What is okay. the index? Yeah. So she's asking about okay. that in, in these times. So, so it's still a matter of setting goals, but now instead of process goals, they become output goals. There might still be some behavioral elements to their to their to their goals, but there'll be a greater focus on output. Um, second, there'll be. Um, if you think about, there's two dimensions for assessing behavior, or for, for excuse me, assessing performance. Hmm. One is you can assess output, and 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 you or can you you can assess behavior. So some jobs you can assess output, but you can't assess behavior. A salesperson, you can't you can't rely upon behavior to know if a person's selling well. What you do is the sales manager at the end of the week says, what have you sold? On the other hand, there's some jobs that are difficult to measure behavior, but it's it's, diff it's difficult to measure output, but it's easy to measure behavior. For example, uh, a, a airline stewardess in an airline, you don't, she doesn't fill out a survey at the end of, this, of, of, the, of the flight and ask every employee was very friendly. Now what happens is the, the her supervisor stands in the back of the plane and says, is Mary smiling? Is she, is she responding quickly to customers? Is she efficient? Is she solving the, the passenger's problems before they exist? So some jobs are oriented towards output measurements. Others are oriented towards behavior measurements. Now the interesting thing in the COVID situation, output is more problematic because we, because we're in the middle of a time where, where customers aren't buying as much. At the same time, you can't watch what your employees are doing, so it becomes more difficult to, to look at their behavior. So how do, you, how do you assess whether people are performing? That's a great question. Well, what that, now this puts the burden right back onto the shoulders of HR. Did they hire the right people in the first place? So that under these, and that's what, uh, uh, what you mentioned at the very first this meeting. Uh, if you've hired the right people in the first place, then you then you can trust that they'll be working hard to achieve their outputs, and they'll be working hard uh, and exhibiting the right behaviors, even though you can't watch them. So the question is, has HR and the leaders hired the right people in the first place? That's the, that's the way you do it. Okay, All right. Um, so I think I think we have really come to end of uh, time. I think time is running short. Uh, so, uh, to all the audience, uh, so, uh, people who are asking for the feedback form, you will be sent directly to your email ID. You can give your feedbacks there, and then I will also share it with Wayne uh, at the same time. Uh, uh, Wayne, before we end the session, uh, I uh, have uh, a couple of more things. So first is uh, any, any last bit of advice you want to give to 
all the leaders out here and uh, since this would be in public domain so people would love to hear something uh, which probably we have not covered i think this has been a very exhaustive discussion and it is so insightful it's it's, it's a lot of weight in in my head and i do a process a lot of information for the chef given so in any last bit you like to add yes yeah, i had two final comments one is that um as i indicate i don't think i not everybody was online when i mentioned this but my next trip to india will be my number 127th trip to india okay so i've spent a lot of my career in india in fact my wife sometimes tells me i sometimes say that india is my second home and my wife will say no it's really your first home <laughs> so i spent a lot of time in india and it's and it's been the one of the greatest blessings of my life because there's a, there's an element there's a spiritual element to how people are treated in india that i don't think exists anywhere else in the world and that's why much of my orientation towards organization towards hr strategy and leadership at least seems to have such deep resonance in india um so as a result we've got we've got data that hr practices in india the right hr practices in india have greater influence on business performance than in any other country I and mean, we've got empirical evidence that shows that so i i so i'm very optimistic about the future of india the world will get through covid but india has built on a spiritual i i, I don't want to overdo it but a spiritual commitment to itself to its society to its country and to its people that seldom exists anywhere else in the world so i am very optimistic about the future of your country and i hope you share that confidence going forward and build on it as we go through covid-19 and build india to an even more powerful and successful country and society so i wish you all the very best hey. good luck and god speed yeah all right thank you uh uh if if you i was just one last thing which is about leadership as a brand if if you don't mind i can can i ask you this thing this is this is my by personal question this is not a audience question this is my personal question which i normally do at the very end of the webinar okay so branding is something which is very critical whether it's a product whether it's a company whether it's an individual uh, you take anything branding is so critical uh so lead and and today's time if i'm firing someone or if i'm laying off someone from let's say from my startup Uh, suddenly from someone who would like me will start hating me and that's a very normal behavior right uh, people it's hard by to come to understand that in such difficult times you are laying off and things like that so i have got this concept which is just a random theory which is that which is something called a leadership personal branding okay so you are a leader how is that your perception you have to build what are the components which you should be filling in to make sure that your perception and your approach to leadership as a concept as a leader is positive even if you are firing so we have seen a lot of letters and a lot of ways which organizations have fired right so we have got people in uber who have fired right on zoom call and then we have got someone from grab 
uh, the CEO of Grab and CEO of Airbnb writing these heartfelt letters to their employees, and suddenly there is this huge paradigm difference in terms of leaders, leader as a brand, you like as an individual, as a leader as a brand. So, what is that thing which is about building that perception about leaders? I just want some insight if you can throw down that. It's just a personal thing which I want to understand. Hey, so. Okay, so let me give you just a couple of quick thoughts because we're going to run out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, brand is a perception. Okay, you know, brand is what other people attribute to you. It's not what you have. It's what other people attribute to you. But the brand is based upon reality. Perceptions are created by people observing certain things, and based upon that, they be, they start to generalize what they see into an overall brand. For example, if they see somebody smiling all the time, trying to help other people, uh, they see them um, uh, answering questions, they see them providing assistance to their families. Then, then that aggregation of behaviors, people will say, "Oh, that's a, that's a friendly leader." So friendly becomes a, a a brand perception of that people based upon people observing an aggregation of behaviors. Okay, so so the key issue is for leaders to have a brand is they have to behave certain ways and and. Um, and exhibit those behaviors publicly and consistently. And in order for that brand to be legitimate and credible, those behaviors have to result in performance. So that combination of performance and behaviors that are consistently done result in people using certain words to describe that leader. And that those words that they use to describe that leader and their behaviors and the results that are created by those behaviors become that person's brand. You can't always control your output, but you can always control your behavior. So the foundation is the behavior. And the reason I say that is is, is there other factors that impact output besides your behavior? Luck skill somebody else's failure so you have to, so the foundation is your behavior that that over time do create results and that results in in in, in brand the danger is in, in in framing it too much in terms of brand if you create if you if you talk a brand but your behaviors don't support that brand then you lose your credibility and your legitimacy to lead very quickly. So talking brand to me is almost 100% irrelevant. What creates the brand is your behaviors that create results. Great, great. I mean, <clears throat> there's been a lot of information which you have to process and I'm sure there were a lot of people who would like to see this video and uh, on that note, when I I am so 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 glad that you accepted the invitation and we have finally been able to pull this thing off. Uh, so happy you could make some time and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Uh -huh.
for having me and good luck and best to all of you thank you this is namaste from india and you hope we have a good day ahead yeah okay i look thank forward you. to the day where we all meet in person absolutely i'm waiting for your 127th trip to india <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you thank you all the audience thank you.